I want to speak to you today about the evolution of a vision. And my text is Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11 is one of the most depressing chapters in the Old Testament. The children of Israel were deeply discontent with their circumstances and they're now venting their frustrations against God by murmuring against Him. This was a perennial problem that got them into trouble again and again. But this time, they really crossed the line and God in His righteous anger responds by sending a fire to consume some of them of these perpetrators. What was the complaint? They were sick and tired of the manna. We want meat. We want our onions. We want our garlics. And the children of Israel, of course, have been, you know, eating manna now for some time. And they were not really thrilled about it. I can just imagine how exciting the first time you know, the first day when they saw this strange white substance on the ground. I think after a week, they would trail. After a month, it was still fun. It was still novel. But after a while, the food, this, this, this is the food that the angels ate. Come on. They baked it. They fried it. They broiled it. They stewed it. They roasted it. They steamed it. They made cakes out of it. But after a while, they exhausted all the ways they could cook it. And then they began to murmur and complain. And the complaint was not just we're sick and tired of this manner. The complaint was, why in the world did you ever deliver us from Egypt? We were so much better in the land of bondage. Think about this, ladies and gentlemen. It's amazing to think about this because the same miracle that excited all of them several months before, now becomes the very thing that they're complaining about. What happened? I'd like to suggest a few things. Number one, they got bored and they gave into their intense craving. A craving is a, 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 a you gotta beware of those cravings. It's an extreme desire that has to be indulged in. I've discovered in life that one of the keys is moderation. Everybody say moderation, please. Moderation. Eating is necessary for our survival. Overeating is gluttony. Drinking in moderation is permissible in the Bible, but done in excess, it's drunkenness. Sleeping is necessary, but oversleeping is laziness. Working is part of our human experience, but overworking has terrible ramifications, which is why God gave us the Sabbath. Sex is a beautiful gift from God, but oversexing is harmful. There's a term for it, hypersexuality, and it's a form of addiction. Learn to live in moderation. Learn to live in, in temperance, amen. When we go to the Bible College of Wales, there are a few things we miss. Number one, I really miss my family. Every time I go there, two, three weeks, I miss my family. Number two, I miss the atmosphere in Cornerstone. I tell you, don't ever take for granted the worship presence of God in this place, amen. There's something here in this place that's so wonderful. But the third thing we miss is the food, hallelujah. And uh, you know, and we make adjustments. The moment we land, we make adjustments. And every now and then we still look for the Chinese food, but at least now it's not something that's a priority. We've got to learn to control those cravings, amen. Number two, they complain whenever things didn't go their way. One time the children of Israel complained against God and against Moses very grievously. And the Lord responded by sending fiery serpents amongst them and I'm telling you it doesn't pay to murmur and complain because it exposes you to fiery serpents and all sorts of poison will come into you. How do we purify ourselves from a complaining spirit? Thanksgiving! Learn to give thanks. Learn to be grateful for everything that God has done for you. Learn to be grateful in every circumstance through everything that God has brought you through. Amen. 
It's really important for us to look at the small things as well that God has done for us. Number three, the miraculous is not a guarantee of walking in the Spirit. Now the children of Israel had this intense craving for meat. And I, they went overboard and the Lord says, okay, if that's what you want, I'll give it to you. Now if ever the Lord answers your prayer that He does not actually want to answer, you better duck because it's not going to be pretty. Let me tell you this. Because the moment they, they, the moment God answered, you want meat? All right, here's meat. Quail piled up, two cubits high. Boy, that's a, almost three feet of meat all around the perimeter of the camp. That's a lot of bird. The moment they ate it, God struck them uh, with a very great plague and all those that yielded to this craving died as a result of that. My goodness. Now out of this whole story, comes the principle that I want to allude to here in Numbers chapter 11. Moses is unable to bear the burden of the people. The children of Israel were always complaining, rebelling against Moses' authority. And he's at the point of emotional burnout. And jo um, uh, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, was witnessing everything that was going on in the, in, in the earlier episode said to Moses, Moses, what you're doing is going to destroy you. You're carrying too much burden. You're carrying too much load. And what you're doing is not good for you. You're going to burn out. And he gave some wonderful advice to Moses to delegate his responsibility, what Bible scholars call jetrogation. And Moses heeded the advice of Jethro and delegated his authority to tens, leaders of tens and fifties and hundreds and thousands. And that was a phenomenal idea. That was a brilliant management strategy on delegation and that's the kind of stuff they teach you in the universities but it was not a God idea how do I know that because it didn't solve the problem Moses is now worse off than before the delegation principle did not alleviate the pain and the misery so often we think that the answers to our problems in the church is to attend a conference now you must attend the conference next week hallelujah but it's not the conference that where you get the answers. It's on your knees that you get the answers. Amen. The psalmist says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence cometh my help? My help comes from the Lord. In other words, my help ain't coming from them mountains or them hills. Hallelujah. Watch this, please. Numbers 11. The Lord Himself now comes. Moses is so burned out. He's so discouraged. The Lord comes to him and He gives counsel for governance that was somewhat different to the advice that Jethro gave Moses. What the Lord said to Moses was to get 70 elders of Israel, gather them at the tabernacle of the meeting, which was outside the camp, by the way. And God says, I'll come and I'll take some of the spirit that's upon you, Moses, and I'll put it on the 70 elders. And when that happened, the moment that happened, those 70 elders started prophesying. And what happened was, ladies and gentlemen, watch this place, really important. When God took the spirit that was on Moses and placed it upon the 70 elders, they began to receive a prophetic mantle, a prophetic burden, and they began to shoulder the burden with Moses. They carried the weight together. This is a prophetic thing. This is a supernatural thing. This is a prophetic burden. Now, I want you to hold that thought. I'll circle back to it in a few moments. But allow me just to take you on a journey down memory lane 
to drive home the point that I want to make today. The Lord spoke to me this week, Numbers 33 and verse 2. And the Lord said this, Now Moses wrote down the starting points. Watch this. The starting points of the journey at the command of the Lord. What God said to Moses, I want you to write, I want you to record the starting points of the journey. And all of chapter 33 has to do with the journey of Israel, summarized in one chapter. Now, ladies and gentlemen, as you get older, one of the things that happens to you is you start losing a little bit of your short-term memory. Your short-term memory is, and your long-term memory are, are, are placed differently, are stored differently in different parts of the brain. And the part of the brain that stores your short-term memory degenerates with age. But the part of the brain that stores the long-term memory does not degenerate unless you've got Alzheimer's or you've got dementia. Now at this stage in my life, boy, I seem to be able to remember and recall all the old stories with ease. But I have a hard time trying to remember where I parked my car, hallelujah. Or what I had for lunch yesterday. Now, so I'm, I'm doing the best to record all the old narratives. My wife says, you got two main problems. She said, number one, you don't listen. Number two, I can't remember what was it. <laughs> When we get older, we start losing that faculty, uh, short-term memory. You know, I tell you what else we lose when we get older. You know, somebody said at 25 is the face that God gave you. At 50 is the face you go, you, you earn by experience. But at 75, you realize that gravity always wins. Hallelujah. <laughs> Number 33, listen, is dedicated to one thing, the journey that the children of Israel took in the wilderness for 40 years. Did you know for 40 years, they camped a total of 40 times in 40 different locations and every location was a watering hole. And it was the Lord who commanded Moses to record the journey for posterity. And in the same manner, the Holy Spirit has been saying to me, I want you to record the journey of, the, of my people here in Cornerstone in the past 28 years. And if you had five years in the Anglican church, 33 years, why is this important? It's important because Judges chapter two and verse 10 tells us that a generation arose after them that did not know the Lord nor the mighty works that he had done for Israel. I think it's safe to say that the majority of people here in this room today is unaware of how we actually began the many battles that we fought and the people who were important in our journey. I used to talk, I talk a lot about Brother Bailey. I still talk a lot about him because he made such an impact in my life and in the impact of the church. And sometimes people come up to me at the end of the service and say, who is Brother Bailey? And so I have to remind you of these things because it's important because history gives us a point of reference for the future, amen. Now, if you think about it, the Bible is essentially a historical uh, record of God and His dealings with humanity. Leonard Ravenhill once said this. He said, the one thing we learn from history is that we don't learn from history. <laughs> and this lack of knowledge guarantees one thing, that we will make the same mistakes of the previous generation and that will keep us in the cycle of futility. So we got to have a clear understanding of the past because it's a point of reference for the future. God moves in patterns, 40-year cycles, or what we call a generation. Amen. In 1990, the Lord called my wife and I to start a, a, a new work. The church was called Badok Christian Center. I mentioned this a little bit during our Vision Sunday. Because of the locality that we were in, we were part of the extension of the Chapel of the Resurrection, which was part of the Anglican Communion. 
1990 was my Genesis 12 call. I just quit my secular job. And for me, it was like Abraham leaving the Ur of the Chaldeans to embark on a journey into the unknown. I had no idea where God was going to take us. All I had was a promise from Him that He would be with us and that was good enough for me. I took that bungee step of faith. I have not regretted one moment. I'm telling you this in 33, God is my witness. In 33 years, not one day have I ever looked back and say, I wish I didn't take that step of faith. I tell you this, I didn't choose this life. This life chose me and I do not regret one moment the life that He has chosen for me. Amen. I had only one commandment from the Lord when we first started and the Lord said to me, this church must be a mission-sending church and must be engaged in global missions. Now, the honest truth is that I had no idea how to grow a church. I didn't even know what a mission or a vision statement was. I was just plain ignorant, but we knew that God had called us and He had promised that He would be with us. And in spite of my ignorance, in spite of my inability, the Lord was faithful to us. And the church grew from 120 people exactly in the Duke's Hotel, 1990, in 1990 on the 2nd of February, we grew to about 400 people in our first service when we started Cornerstone in 1995. Not long after we started the church, I came across a book by a man called George Barnard, who wrote on the power of vision. And in the book, he said that every successful corporation had a vision statement, something that was succinct, something that was clear, and all companies had this one tangible goal, a clear vision, and they all had a statement of purpose. And then he mentioned that every church that desired to be successful ought to have a clear vision statement. So we decided, okay, this is what we needed in the church. We needed a vision statement for Cornerstone. So we gathered all the leaders together one day, we brought in a management consultant. I, I, I still remember brainstorm for six hours. Usually when we brainstorm, it's more storm than brain. Finally came up with our first vision statement. A people trained and equipped for missions and church group. Woo! I was so proud. We were so proud of it because we thought that this statement reflected the ideals of our church and it would be a rallying point for the people. What a disappointment it turned out to be. In six months, nobody remembered it. Nobody was talking about it. For us, it was just an academic exercise. I have discovered, ladies and gentlemen, that people don't rally around a vision statement. They rally around the Word of the Lord. Hallelujah. Do we have the Word of the Lord? Amen. That's why I say to the pastors who preach here, you got to have the Word of the Lord because people are not going to want to waste their time coming here for a clever sermon. They want to hear from heaven. Amen. Mr. Reese Howells established an amazing overcoming community at the Bible College of Wales, around the Word of God. People came from around the world and they rallied, not around us, a man, but the man who had the Word of the Lord. Hallelujah. Not a statement. One and a half years later, some of our leaders attended a cell conference. We came back all pumped up about cell groups. Are cells important? You bet. Absolutely. But that was when we decided that we wanted Cornerstone to be a cell church because we felt that life was done best in small church, small group communities. So we revised our statement to read this way. A family of people gathered in a network of home cell communities, being trained and equipped for intercession, global outreach, and church growth. Woo! 
I thought to myself, this is it, man. This is six months later, nobody was even remembering. Hardly recall what the vision statement was. And I was desperate because I needed a vision to galvanize the body of Christ. Then I read about the seeker-friendly church model and the amazing stories and success of a church in South Barrington in Illinois called Willow Creek. 1996, I hopped on a plane with a few friends to go and see what God was doing there to see if we could learn something from them. I tell you, it was one of the biggest mistakes in my life because it almost derailed the church from our God-given destiny. Now, Willow Creek at the time was the, I think, third largest church in America. I've never seen a more amazing facility. The auditorium could sit 7,000 people. The staff exuded confidence and excellence, but they were a seeker-friendly church, and that wasn't our DNA. They had great programs, their presentations, their drama presentations was almost Broadway standard. I think that 20, 30 full-time actors in the church. So we came back. Now they were very seeker-friendly, but they were not so friendly to the Holy Spirit. And that's not our DNA. I came back to Singapore. We tried to implement the, the drama in the church. Boy, I'm the, this number one, Singaporeans don't act very well. <laughs> the dramas were terrible. I was cringing most of the time. We tried to create this seeker-friendly environment. And in the process, I think we offended the Holy Spirit because six months into this, nothing was happening. The church was directionless. Our services were drying up. And this is how the Lord spoke to me. I'm sort of paraphrasing. These are not the words he said, but I'm paraphrasing what he was trying to convey to me. He said, you would travel 10,000 miles to the US to try and get a vision from someone, but you won't get down on your knees to ask me what I thought about the church. Come on. Well, I tell you, I was deeply convicted. I felt I had to stand before the whole church, repent, to say I was wrong. I was sorry. I misled the church. And I, we told the Lord we were sorry. I, right here on this pulpit, I did that. And people said, Pastor Young, that was one of the most defining moments for the whole church. That service marked the turning point for the church as far as I was concerned because I began to understand that it was only in the prayer room that you get the word of the Lord. Amen. I wish I could say that after the next service, everything was hunky-dory. No, sir. It took us several years to come to self-discovery, who we are as a people. We cried out to God as a team and the Lord began to gel us together, build core values. I had to learn how to be introspective and then God brought into my life Brother Bailey and that was really one of the game changers because of his influence and his godly life that changed something in this church. I think personally many churches make the mistake of writing their values or the missional statement, whatever you want to call it, within the first few years of the beginnings of the church. And that's not just only premature, but it gives the church a false vision. Why? Because you don't have history, man. You don't have history. You've not made the mistakes before. Woo. So over the past years, 28 years, our vision began, which began in a seed form, <coughs> is now beginning to take shape and that vision is becoming clearer and clearer for me after, with each passing year. And one of the things that I have discovered over 28 years that God doesn't show you everything at once. He gives you one and if you're faithful with one, He gives you two. 
If you're faithful with two, he gives you four. If you're faithful with four, he gives you eight. And he starts to multiply what he has given to you. And how much you grow depends on how much you've utilized what he has given to you. Faith will bring you to a new level, but faithfulness will keep you there. Amen. In Habakkuk, the Lord said to the prophet, I want you to make it very clear to the people. I'm going to give you a vision, but I want you to write this down. Make it easy to understand, not complicated. Write it down so that the people can read it and understand and benefit from it. Vision is not vision until it's communicated to the people. Amen. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10, same thing. He says, I plead with you, my brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you speak the same thing. This is what I want to see happen here in Cornerstone. I want all of us to speak the same things. Let there be no divisions among you, but that you may be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Paul pleaded with the Corinthian church that they all speak the same thing. Hallelujah. This is uniform testimony. Let me circle back to the story in Numbers chapter 11. God took the spirit that was upon Moses and he placed it on the 70 elders. And the moment that happened, boom, they all started prophesying. There were two men in the camp, Eldad and Medad. This is going to be the team of my father's conference, hallelujah, Eldad and Medad. Who for some reason did not make it to the meeting. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, how do you skip a meeting with God, right? But these two guys somehow were not at the meeting. And when God poured out His Spirit on the leadership, the two guys in the camp who did not were not present, also got filled with the Holy Ghost and they started prophesying. I tell you how God is impartial, amen. It's a good God, hallelujah. Sometimes, you know, I come to church and I say, Lord, those people don't come, don't bless them. <laughs> God's not like this. When Joshua heard about this, he was upset, you know, and he said to Moses, you got to tell them to stop. But here's what Moses said, Joshua, are you zealous for my sake? I would to God that all of God's people were prophets. It's the express desire of the Lord to put His prophetic mantle upon His whole church because it's through the prophetic. Watch this, that we receive the burden of the Lord. When God favors a people, He shares with them His burden. He takes a bit of their heart and shares it with them. You know, a few, uh, last week, we brought the staff at the Bible College of Wales to watch the movie, uh, The Sound of Silence. I don't know if you ever watched that. I don't know if it's in Singapore, whether it's showing, but I tell you, if you have never watched it, you've got to watch it. It's about the perils and the terrible evil of sex slavery, especially with children. I, my goodness, I came out of the movie and I was so shaken. You know, sometimes when you come out of a movie when you're with friends in the car, we're all talking about the movie, we're all laughing. That's the only time when we were in the car going back, no one said a single word because we were all deeply moved emotionally by what we watched. And this is something God is stirring up, I believe, in the body of Christ. It is a prophetic burden that is coming. There are some things, you know, it's like Uncle Tom's Cabin was written by that woman, Harriet Beecher Stowe. When she wrote the book, she sparked the civil war. Did you know that? After she wrote the book, the evils of slavery could never exist any longer. And when Abraham Lincoln met with Harriet Beecher Stowe, he said, you are the little lady that started the whole war. And I'll tell you this, I believe God wants to put that prophetic thing in us as well. That we can spark movements throughout the world because God has put a burden in our hearts. Amen. Am I making sense to you? And he does this by taking the prophetic 
and placing it upon the church and we carry the burden. It's a supernatural thing. Ladies and gentlemen, when I prep for my sermon, I take a lot of time and effort to prepare the message, but I pray to get the burden. Hallelujah. This is not the same thing. And Moses is not saying that everyone would operate in the office of a, of a prophet. What he was saying that everyone, the Spirit would, of God would come, could hear the voice of God and could repeat what he says. That's prophecy 101, man. It's not arrogance in our part to say that we can hear the voice of God. If you can't hear the voice of God, you won't be here today. You won't get saved because you got saved only because you heard his summons. Hallelujah. My mom is at this, she's, not, she's going to be 90 at the end of the year. We're celebrating a birthday. It's going to be a wonderful time. But my mom is a little hard of hearing right now. Uh, when I speak to my mom, I have to raise my voice. I have to raise my voice or position myself in such a way that she could see me and my lips moving so that she knows that I'm talking to her. It's my responsibility to ensure that she hears what I say, not her responsibility. In the same way, the weight of responsibility to be heard rests on the Lord's shoulder, not on our shoulders. And that's what good fathers do. They speak loud enough to be heard. Come on. A good father will not sit quietly by the, by the corner and, and speak softly and whisper something and then discipline his child because they couldn't hear. What sort of a father would that be, right? And it's, in your, it's, the, it's the, the, the desire of your heavenly father that you hear him. Come on. It's in the spiritual DNA that you have to hear from God. And the cry of the world today is they want to hear what God is saying. And that's where we come in. We have the word of the Lord. Hallelujah. We are the ones that carry the word of the Lord. And we are the ones that get to release that word to others to bring them into their destiny. Let me close with Acts chapter 3 and verse 25. Peter stands up at the gate, beautiful. There's a huge crowd of people. A lame man who was born lame, got healed. He's jumping and dancing and leaping. That's a notable miracle, by the way. There's a massive crowd there and Peter starts preaching and this is what he says. He says, you are the sons of the prophets and the covenant which God made with his people. Which means it doesn't matter who your parents were, whether they were believers or unbelievers. It doesn't matter what your history was, what your pedigree was, or what your background is. What matters is when you got born again, you got born into a family where the very thing that was passed down to you was the ability to hear from God and to speak His Word. Come on, my friends. Amen. We are the sons of the prophets. The prophetic Word is in us. We are the beginning of the lineage of people that hear the Word of the Lord and the Word has been put in our mouths and when we speak what He is saying, it releases life and purpose to those we speak it to. I'll close with Isaiah 59 verse 21. As for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them, my spirit who is upon you, my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your descendants, nor from the mouth of your descendants, descendants, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Ladies and gentlemen, this is what God wants to do. There is a, a, a prophetic anointing over this house, over this church, over the leadership, over my life. And what I believe the Holy Spirit wants to do is to take this prophetic burden and place it upon this house. Hallelujah. He wants Cornerstone, all of Cornerstone to be prophetic. Amen. Now, when we first, many years ago, we were studying about the tribes of Israel. I asked the Lord a question. I said, which tribe 
is cornerstone. There are 12 tribes. The Holy Spirit responded to me, Zechariah chapter 10 and verse 3, out of Judah comes the cornerstone. Boy, I was thrilled. So my assignment was to study the tribe of Judah, to look at the tribal anointing over Judah. Two things about Judah. Number one, they were a warring tribe. Hallelujah. They were in battles all the time and they were always first in battle. And that gives us an understanding of who we are as a people. But the second thing about Judah was they carried the scepter that the kings of Israel would come from the tribe of Judah. And God gave me a promise concerning this. And so I, we begin to study the tribe of Judah. We begin to ask the Lord for this Judah-type anointing over the church. But then over the years, the Lord began to speak to me about the other tribes. He said, I'm going to bring people from three tribes, in particular, to Cornerstone. Listen very carefully. The tribe of Gad, the tribe of Asher, and the tribe of Issachar. Now, Issachar, of course, is the prophetic tribe. God has brought many prophetic people into this church, but it's not just the fact that they were prophetic. They were the donkey. They carried the burden of the Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. The tribe of Gad was an overcoming tribe, and the tribe of uh, Asher, Asher was the most favoured of all the sons of Israel. So the Lord says there is going to be these people from these three tribes that will be coming and will be part of Cornerstone as well. The high priest of Israel had a breastplate and on the breastplate there were 12 gemstones and each gemstone represents a tribe of Israel. If you read the book of Ezekiel, the 28th chapter, you will come and find that Satan, Lucifer, had a breastplate too. And he had a breastplate with nine gemstones. In other words, he was a priest of some kind when he was in heaven. He ministered to the Lord with song and music. There were three gemstones that were missing from his breastplate. And those three gemstones are very important because they represent the three tribes that I believe are very important. So this morning, early in the morning, about two o'clock in the morning, I'm going through the prophetic journals of Cornerstone. I have jet lag, so I can't sleep. I might as well pray, amen. So I'm reading the prophetic journals and I came across a prophecy by Chris Berkland. And Chris said to me, Pastor Young, there are three tribes that are very important for Cornerstone, Gad, Asher, and Issachar. Come on, Jay. And I, be, I, I was so, I couldn't sleep after that. I was so excited about this. I, I realized that this is, this is a prophetic moment for me. This was something God was revealing to the church that He wants us to be in a church of overcomers, hallelujah. He wants there to be a prophetic anointing over this house and He wants, and he wants His favour. He's going to shower His favour upon this house. And these three tribes are the things that the enemy is trying to rob the church because he doesn't have them, hallelujah. Just listen to a production of Cornerstone Community Church. Please note that all unauthorized reproduction, distribution, or sale of the recording is prohibited. For permission to reproduce or distribute the sermon, please write into mail at cscc.org.sg. We hope that you have been blessed.